attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, Les Gurvey. Les Gurvey was one of the road trip podcasts. I met him in his house in Atlanta. I walk in the door and there is an enormous dining room table completely covered with camp pictures and camp memorabilia. He was raring to go from the first second. He was really excited to talk about camp. We probably talked for an hour before I even got the mics turned on. It was really incredible. He had some awesome stories. One of the great stories that I think we did not get to on the mic but he had mentioned beforehand was his mother had actually dated Sid Novak back in the day. So he had a tight connection to camp from a very, very early on pre his own birth. <laughs> in other news, it's a awful, terrible, rainy mess here in Chicago, but I'm here for the week doing some interviews. I did a very experimental new podcast style interview today. At a round table with six different guys all at once talking about camp stuff. It was a lot of fun. I wasn't sure it was going to work, but I think it's going to be great. So look for that in the future, and we may use that format to kind of spice things up along the way, mix in a few like that. Also, I'm here in Chicago getting very excited about the 90th summer celebration as we get fired up to get there. But enough about that. Let's get to it. Less Gurvy on the Camp Ojibwa history podcast uh, first and foremost for the record please state your name and years at camp my name is Les Gurvey and I started in camp in 1951 and I think let's see Probably 58 was the last time I was at camp. Excellent. So how do you first find out about Camp Ojibwa? I think what happened was there was a whole group of us that grew up in Chicago together, and we all went to a camp in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, called Briar Lodge. Okay. And in 1949, or 50, I'm not sure exactly what year, Everybody decided they were going to go to Camp Ojibwa. <laughs> so everyone who was at this other camp, camp Lodge. together. There were 50 campers there. 37 of the 50 ended up at Camp <laughs> and, That's wonderful. And mostly, I'll tell you why it happened, is because most all the parents during summer camp time would get together and go up to Wisconsin 
to a place called um, something, I forgot what it was called. It wasn't too far out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Okay. And a place called the Turtle Club or something. And that's where the parents would always go together. So when one parent said, well, I'm sending my kids someplace, all the other kids went to. <laughs> it was just that easy. And, and from that point on, it was, I mean, friendships were started there. That some friendships have lasted 50 and 60 years. Yeah. Now, at that time, did your parents or did any of those parents there at the Turtle Club, did they know Al or Pearl? Did they know of them? Al, actually, I'll tell you, did I remember now, Al came to our house in Chicago. Oh. Um, my parents lived in, in West Rogers Park, and Al came to my house, and with him was, um, I forgot his name now. Anyway, Al came. not Sid. No, Sid lived down the street, so we always. I knew oh. Sid. <laughs> Sid Novak. Sid Novak was a good friend of my mom and dad's. Gotcha. He lived about ten houses down the street from us on Farwell Avenue, and I grew up with Rosie, his older daughter, and the younger daughter, Ellen, grew up with my uh, my cousins. Hmm. We're always friendly to family. Um, but Al came to camp. Al came to the house to talk to my mom and dad about Camp Wajua and what it was and showed pictures of it and he had a movie. Oh. Or was it, no, it was a slideshow. A slideshow, okay. a slideshow that he showed pictures of the camp. Hmm. And yeah, I guess that's what started it and my parents said, great, and they, the next thing I knew was that summer we were at camp. Nice. <laughs> and now going to Camp Ojibwa, um, you took the train. Actually, what happened, going to Camp Ojibwa was really... A learning experience for a 10-year-old <laughs> and a 9-year-old. Um, we went with a parent. We packed up our trunks and everything else, our suitcases and our big camp trunks, and uh, took them over to the Evanston Station of the Northwestern Railroad. Okay. On the Northwestern train. And if there were 10 kids there, there were 10,000 because <laughs> the camp train was strictly for campers. It went from downtown Chicago, one stop in Evanston. The next stop was out in the middle of the boonies because it stayed overnight someplace. And after that, it was Eagle River, Wisconsin. Hmm. It was an overnight camp train. And not just Camp Ojibwe campers. No, it was all kinds of campers on it, boys and girls galore. Hmm. Um, there were probably, I, I, I would say there were probably 10 different camps on that train at one wow. time. It was just huge. It was unbelievable. Wow. And uh, it was an overnight trip because the younger ones, when you, if you were really young, you slept in a berth with a little cloth thing to close off so they, you'd go to sleep. Mm -hmm. the, other, the older guys, they made noise all night and whatever <laughs> they could do to keep everybody else awake. But it was a, that was how you got to camp. There was no other way. There's no buses or cars or trucks or anything. Hmm. So the train ex in those days, the train experience is as much a piece of the camp experience as everything else. It's oh, yeah. it's was, a whole thing. The, the train experience was the beginning of a camping season, hmm. and the camping season ended when you got on the train to come home because hmm. nobody wanted to go home. Of course. Um, so a second ago when we were talking, you mentioned this, but I, I just wanted to get it down. Um, you talked about the baggage and how the baggage was handled and how the baggage was handled once it got to camp. Tell me about that again. Well, everybody had trunks. Big old, not only suitcases, these were trunks. This is a big trunk, and you had everything you had to bring to camp. Blankets, sheets, 
if you had a pillow that you wanted, you had pillows. Oh, sure. Um, all your clothing, whatever there was, everything you needed for camp. Because at that time, camp had a ritual thing that you had to go buy certain things. You had to have mm. white duck pants and you had a certain white shirts and the camp shirts and different things. Was there like a specific store for that stuff? Or, Marshall or? Field and Company. Oh, I see. Okay. Actually, Marshall Field and Company downtown was the only store that had all the camps. And all the camp gear. Oh, I see. So you would go in and say, I'm going to Camp Ojibwa, and they'd say, here's Ojibwa stuff. What do you want? And you bought whatever is on your list. Wow. Plus whatever else you wanted. Sure. But you take take your camp trunk, and you brought it to to the train station in Evanston, and the people from Railway Express, they came down the aisle on the station platform with these big old carts they were pulling, Loaded your trunks up on top of that, took it down to where the train was at, loaded it on the train. Hmm. Well, and then it was on, some of them were inside uh, cabooses, not cabooses, but closed-in freight cars. Okay. A lot of them were on the open flat cars that they put a canvas over the top to keep them from getting wet in the rain. <laughs> and uh, the next morning when you got to camp, you didn't get to camp, you got to Eagle River, Wisconsin, everybody got off to off of the uh, train, and they had signs where the different camps would say, okay, Ojibwa over here, and jack lantern over here, and Thunderbird over here. Mm. And you went to wherever it was at, and they, you got onto the truck or in a car or a bus or whatever it was, and you went back to camp. Meanwhile, all the luggage was being offloaded onto other trucks, mm-hmm. and that went ahead of all the campers. And... What happened was, like when Ojibwe, when they got all the luggage off the off the train from the Railway Express Company, they took it to camp and they would circle the big campus in these trucks and throw the luggage on the ground in front of the cabin where you were supposed to be. Hmm. Because when you got to camp, you never knew what cabin you were in. And that's when you got to camp from the parking lot after you went through underneath the Ojibwe sign, and everybody tried to stand up and hit it. <laughs> you were 10 years old, you couldn't reach it or anything. But um, they would, you would get up there, and you would just run up to the campus, and it was like a free-for-all, everybody looking for their trunks. There were so, no two the same. So you just had to run around, find your trunk, and, and wherever cabin went. it was, that's where that's you were. That's you were in. That's amazing. That's they, I don't know how they did it. That's how they did it in the beginning, and as far as I remember, for the next seven or eight or ten years. Yeah. Yeah, these days the bags um, are these gigantic duffel bags that are the size of this table, and kids can bring two of those, and they come in a big truck the day before, and we haul them all out to the cabins, and then, uh, but the kids don't go searching out their bags. Now we use lists, so it's a little easier for them. It was a lot of fun, though. It was always fun because, I mean, nobody, there was no such thing as duffel bags back then. They were big, hard trunks. Yeah. So you get to Camp Ojibwe for your first time. Um, what's the first thing you remember? Uh, the funny thing was the first, I was, I was a little taken back because I wasn't quite sure that I was in the cabin that I was supposed to be in. And I couldn't find my brother because he was at the other end of the cabins. I was, I ended up in cabin three. Hmm. And my brother was in cabin 12. So I didn't see him for the first whole day. Oh, so wow. I wasn't even sure he was still there. <laughs> He never came to see me either, which was kind of strange now that I think about it. <laughs> but it was just, it was really, a, it was a different experience being in an overnight camp, really so far away from home. Because as I said, the earlier years before at Camp Fire Lodge, 
my parents used to drive us up there, take an hour, an hour and a half. Right. Uh, this is a whole different thing. And you're how old? Now or then? Then. Ten years old. Ten years old. Actually, I was nine. I had my 10th birthday at camp. Oh, ber- camp birthday. That's good. Camp birthday. That's a good thing. Yep. I'm so jealous. Uh, I wish I had a camp birthday. What's her name? Evans. Uh, Katie Evans? Katie Evans. Mm-hmm. Made a birthday cake for my cabin. Oh, that's fantastic. And, of course, the counselors all ate it. Sure. <laughs> but it was, Katie Evans did that. And it was just, it was a great experience. It was a You know, the counselors came in and they told us uh, Bob Kiltrail was the counselor. And he was also the camp bugler. Okay. Don Kiltrail. Don Kiltrail. Don Kiltrail. That's who it is. Okay. He was, the, he was my counselor, and he was also the camp bugler. So we were always up before everybody else. Of course. He's got to get out there. Yeah. And uh, it was just, it was kind of nice. It was a great experience to start to learn everybody. Everybody had a choice to pick whatever bed you wanted. Hmm. And I knew that I went all the way in the very back of the cabin, and in the corner I got that bed. And Jeff Randall was right next to me. And uh, Simon Michelson was across the aisle in the other back bed. And we became camp friends for years. Nice. Simon Michelson and I had remained in communication for 50, 65 years. Wow. That's incredible. It's unbelievable. And I lost track of Jeff in uh, probably 1963. Hmm. When I left after I finished college, hmm. uh, it was you made friends at camp that you every year you wanted to see more. During off camp season, I would go all the way down to the south side of Chicago to see Jeff, and he'd come up to the north side and hmm. see me riding Chicago elevated trains. Wow, yeah, that's definitely that's the time period where the um, the neighborhoods that camp kids are coming from start to continue to move north yeah. earlier the 30s and 40s you got guys coming from the south side very commonly and by the time we get to the into the 50s and 60s it starts to be less south side and more yeah. in the north shore the campers at Ojibwe in, in the 1951 52 53 era if you came from the Chicago area Chicago land area you were spread out everywhere there was I mean there were very few very, very few people lived in what is now known as the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, Skokie was, Skokie was a farm. <laughs> Highland Park was, you needed a passport to get right. so far away. There was no such thing as the expressways at the time. And, you know, there was no interstates or anything else. Yeah. So kids lived in, like we lived in the north side. We lived in Rogers Park. Uh, in fact, when, we went, when I first went to Camp Ojibwa, I lived right behind Wrigley Field. Oh, okay. Okay. And that was the north side that then. That was the north side, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, then when I moved north into Rogers Park, there was another whole environment. That's when Sid Novak lived down the block. Hmm. But there were campers that were from the on the west side of Chicago, which seemed like the other side of the world. Sure. Uh, Southsiders, guys that lived way south, 55th, 65th in the lake and further. Hmm. But it was just a, it was just a, it was a whole new environment, an experience that I look back and think of a real good education. Yeah, it really was. And you talk about those camp friends now. Do you in the off season? I mean, like you said, if it's a West Side guy, I mean, you might as well be going to the moon as to see that guy in well, the off season. But do you uh, write letters? Do you, do you well, we pen pal during the year? I'm, like I say, I lost track of Jeff Randall probably in 1963, right after college. And I've regretted it because I keep trying to find him. Every time I go back to Chicago or I 
start Googling, I go searching things, and I just can't seem to locate them anywhere. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, I'll bump into somebody traveling and ask if they know where so-and-so is at. As I mentioned, Simon Michelson, they used to call him Paducah. He was from Paducah, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And up until um, 15 years ago, I used to see him at least once a year. Hmm. He was in the jewelry store business with he and his brother. Okay. It was Michelson's jewelry store in Paducah, Kentucky. Hmm. And Simon That's Michael, a free plug, Michelson's. <laughs> they're not that, it's, I don't know if it's still in business or not. The younger brother um, might have worked there. But Simon had passed away in uh, about 2000, hmm. somewhere around there. Yeah. And I'd seen him, I'd talked to him every, I'd see him at least once a year because we live so close now, Atlanta and oh, sure. not that far away. Yeah. So now when you go to camp, were you a sports guy? Did I mean, did you like sports already when you got no. there? <laughs> no, not I was a, I was the oddball hmm. of camp. I mean, first of all, I never realized it was a sports camp. Well, that is that is the kind of thing that does happen to an individual from time to time. <laughs> the best thing about camp that I loved was swimming. The water okay. Pup. I was a water puppy. Nice. And, I mean, I spent more time at the lakefront than anything else, hmm. whether it was sailing or canoeing or skiing or swimming or anything. I was always at the waterfront. And the other faint, my other place that I loved so much was the workshop. Hmm. They had a, a craft shop there. And, I, you know, guys would go play baseball, and I didn't know, know what baseball was about. I'd go to the workshop. Nice. What kind of stuff are you doing? Because there was a whole, like, wood shop. I mean, there were tools and all kinds of stuff was, then, right? At, back then, that was, uh, it, it extended from the very, very back end of the, of the uh, rec hall all the way over to the rifle range. Hmm. And it was really a big area. It was a big building at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like now. But we had every kind of tool you could think of and every kind of power tool. Everybody used to make lanyards. Sure. Everybody always made ashtrays to take home for their parents as mm. gifts. Um, and you always, you, you always, they always had somebody that was in charge of the craft shop that was a um, home economics or some kind of a teacher in a high school or college. Gotcha. Yeah, Someone who was a little artsy already or a little crafty doing already. Doing. Yeah. yeah. And it was really a lot of fun. And I learned that. I, I think I learned a lot there that I still have traits of today. Nice. I love to work in a workshop. I have a four-car garage. It's nothing but tools. <laughs> well, I was thinking it's funny because in today's world, you wouldn't put a kid in a room full of power tools. Like, that, you know, it's changed so much. And, yeah. Um, and I know, like, even in the, uh, I don't know if you did Gold Rush Days or if you remember that, but even when Gold Rush Day, which was a... Uh, one of those activities when it started you would do things like have to cut wood or hammer a nail and things like that that's and right. that's just these days that's just not something you well, you mean, work with the kids I with remember in, I remember we made in fact I remember working at it I don't remember if we ever finished it we made these uh, these toys that you used to have with a looked like a hockey stick and a ball and you played it inside of a box Oh, okay. It was made out of wood. It was box hockey. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And we built those. One of the whoever the guy was that year that ran the, the arts and crafts department, he showed everybody how to make this thing, and we all got excited. And we used to make them in on the, what I call the junior ball field, the ball field behind cabin seven. Yes. Those things were used to be outside there, right behind cabin seven, eight, and nine. They still are. 
Does box hockey? Mm-hmm. Box hockey is very popular during collegiate week. Okay. Yeah. We we were the ones in 1950. Had to be 52 or 53. We built the ones that were at camp for years. Wow. Unbelievable. It yeah. Was, and it was a lot of fun too. Um, and the guy who was running, I don't remember his name, but he ran the arts and crafts department there. And, it was it was really something. I mean, especially if you're a non-sports person like myself. Sure. I, I mean, I never played tennis when I grew up. I didn't play baseball or basketball or football or anything else. Swimming was my big forte. Yeah. And I loved it. Now, I mean, in those days, it was tough to be a kid at camp who wasn't a big sports kid. I mean. Um, yes and no. Yeah. Because even though you weren't in the sports, you were drawn into sports because everybody else did it anyway. Gotcha. Um, I remember for many years at camp, I was in charge, and Sid Novak gave me the job. I was in charge. They called me the field man, I think, or field something. I was the one that put the white lines down the first and third baseline. Okay. That's a pretty sweet job. With, uh, we didn't have a machine at that time, by the way. It was a, uh, a plastic milk jug that you know, <laughs> Martin Evans had cut off the bottom of Okay. He kept filling it with lime. White, uh, <laughs> I guess it was lye or lime or something. Okay. And, I, and Sid and I would string a, put a string down there and push it in the ground with a couple of ice cream sticks. And Sid said, just let the stuff drop on that string. Don't worry about it. And that was my job. Every That's, time there was a baseball game. That's fantastic. And then, of course, all the guys that were older and the counselors, the biggest thing about baseball and the main diamond was how many guys can hit the ball onto the roof of the mess hall? Mm. That was the challenge. And, uh, of course, Al didn't like it because every time the ball hit the roof of the mess hall, something in the mess hall always came <laughs> Of course. Of course. That was what everybody loved. But you got, sort of got drawn into different sports. And as you yeah. played them, you enjoyed them. And some, you know, I mean, I, I remember trying to play hardball out at, what they used to call the senior ball field, mm-hmm. which was out off the all the way out, all right? The way out. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to get a passport to get out. <laughs> we would call it the far field these okay. days for you listening at home. But uh, they built a uh, a backstop mm-hmm. because it was hardball, like they played Wrigley Field. I remember them building that backstop, and uh, we went to play baseball out there one day, and. I mean, I tried hitting the ball, but it went by so fast I wasn't sure where it was. And everybody, the thing about it I remember now is that nobody ever booed at you. Nobody ever said, ah, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. It was always, you know, good try, you know, try again later. And, you know, what, a half hour later I was up there doing the same thing again, <laughs> swinging like a fool. Yep. It was just part of just being drawn into it. Yeah, I think that really that's something really specific that's great about Ojibwa, and that is that people don't get down as long as you're willing to try. That's right. If you're not willing to try, that's a different thing. But as long as you're there and you're willing to try, it's a whole support network. They're going to tell you, they're going to help you, they're going to try to tell you how to be better, maybe things like that. Yeah, everything everything you did at camp was a, a new experience, and they made it more fun than anything else. Hmm. I mean, you weren't just going to play baseball against Kevin seven against Kevin nine. They had collegiate week, and everybody liked that because, boy, it was 
you were out there to make sure you won. That was a big, big deal. Well, it was for us because you got ice cream when you, if you won. <laughs> I mean, ice cream at camp was a treat. The whole week or just every, every day? Every time you won something, you got ice cream. <laughs> they, uh, we should bring that back. <laughs> well, anywhere they, what they used to do, if you played tennis in collegiate week, for example, okay. I didn't necessarily play tennis. I was there, and I made my appearance. But um, and this is before the tennis courts were really, I, I would say, up to par. Sure. These tennis courts, when I'm talking about in 1952 or 53 or 51, they were um, hand-rolled asphalt t- tennis courts. Mm. If the ball hit the court, the ball went the wrong direction. <laughs> it hit something in the ground. But sure. If you play tennis in collegiate week and you won, your your team won. The uh, on the porch of the rec hall, there was a little room, and that was the mail room. Oh, sure. Okay. If you mm-hmm. Walked up to the rec hall. It was to the right hand side of the porch. Right. And that's where everybody was to go get mail. That's also where the canteen was at. Oh. And if you won in collegiate week, you went up there and you got an ice cream bar, or they used to have those. Uh, Things that you used to... Oh, like the push-up pops? Push-ups. Yep. Push-up things. The icy push-ups. Yeah. Nice. And that's what you got. So... It's not it shabby. Worth, it was worth playing any sport. It didn't matter. Yeah, for and sure. Everybody liked it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, did you enjoy Collegiate Week? I loved it. I yeah. had a great time. I mean, it's, I just thought it was something different. And, you know, we have a lot of things. I'm not sure what they have at camp anymore today. And that's a shame that I've missed out as the camp's grown, but... You know, we had a, every every other week was something else. Hmm. You know, you had a collegiate week. We had a uh, Olympics day. We, we had Olympic week. Okay. We did the Olympic games. We had a, 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 a war. I think it was a red and white war. Like a color war kind of a thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they had about every other week or two weeks. You know, camp's only eight weeks long, so... Right. They couldn't do very much, but they did plenty to keep you active. Sure. Doing. You had the, the playoffs and the championships from your leagues for the whole summer. Right. That was part of it. Yeah. But it was always fun. No matter what it was, there was something different that you would never do at home. Yeah. And you just didn't think about it. I mean, when I grew up in Chicago, the biggest thing guys did was play line ball. They used to, against the wall at the Boone School Elementary School, because the gym had a three-story wall there. Okay. And you'd be a batter, a pitcher, and one guy behind him, and you'd hit the ball up against the wall. They called it a line ball. Oh, okay. If you got above the windowsill, if you were below the windowsill, it was an out. If you got between the windowsill and the top of the window, that's a a first base. And above that was second base. If you got it up to the very top, you got a home run. But, of course, if you hit the wall and the guy out there turned around and caught it, you were out anyway. <laughs> that was line ball. That's a pretty solid game. Would you use a baseball for that, or more like a tennis ball kind of a thing? Clincher. Oh, of course, of course. I don't. Even, I can't believe I even asked that question. Of course, it was a clincher. <laughs> another thing about camp, you know, that's, I just thought about that. Camp really had different kind of balls. Clinchers are what Chicago guys were accustomed to. Right. Absolutely. And we played with the 16-inch clincher ball at camp. We also had kitty ball. It was like a 12-inch ball. Mm-hmm. And then they had the hard ball, which is out of the field, like I mentioned yeah. earlier. So you got you to gotta do with things that you'd never play with that in Chicago. Sure. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't ever remember growing up having a baseball in that. Hmm. 
they can think of. No, I don't, yeah. It's always the 60, in fact, at my age today, my group of friends that I grew up with in Chicago, some of them I've known for 75 years, and we still get together every year, and we play baseball, 16-inch clincher. <laughs> Last year, we were down to three innings. Well, sure. <laughs> that was at age 74. So That's pretty fantastic, though. The guys, we get 28 guys that have grown up. I've known Wow. I, out of the 28 guys, there's 15 of us that were in baby buggies together. That's just incredible. Yeah. And it, there's been stories written about that. Yeah. Camp is, camp is the same way. It was, a, it was a bonding thing at camp. Yeah. Are there any uh, counselors, junior counselors, senior counselors that really stick out for you as guys that you connected with? There was always somebody that had something unique and different. I mean, most of the counselors and most of the junior counselors became counselors. So you learn, you always were able to know who they were from year to year to year. Mm -hmm. And I... I can't ever say that if a guy became as a junior counselor and he became a counselor, that he didn't come back year after year after year. Mm. So it was like a big happy family. Yeah. Um, nobody ever stuck out in my mind necessarily as one being better than the other. I think a lot of guys had their traits about them that were phenomenal. Mm. The one guy that I talk to my wife about all the time, and I have never seen him since 1955, is a guy named Al Green. Hmm. And uh, he was a counselor. He was a junior counselor, then a counselor. And for many years, he was a counselor. And during collegiate week, he was always at the University of Arkansas. Because that's where he went to school. Hmm. And he always used to run around camp giving the old Arkansas call of suey pig, suey pig. <laughs> but I don't remember anybody. You know, there, there was a clan. I mean, it's just because they, there were so many of them. There was a, a group of guys who were phenomenal. They were, they were friendly. They were always nice. They were always looking out for the little guy, always looking out to make sure everybody got together with everything. The Bartlestein clan. Mm. There was Gordy, Gordy Bartlestein, Aaron Bartlestein. There were three or four or five of them. There was a whole family of Bartlesteins. Yeah. And they were there for... I guess uh, from the early 30s all the way up until the 70s. But there were a couple of different families that were like that. That, that the older brother was there before them, and uh, I mean the Lakin family, for example. Mm. I mean the whole family of Lakins. I mean, I think the Lakins occupied one whole cabin. <laughs> and but and they were phenomenal athletes. Yeah. Unbelievable athletes. Um, I remember that. It's, it's really funny now that I think about it. There's a guy at camp. He, ironically, he married my cousin, but um, his name was, they called him Bruddy. His name was Joel Farber. And Joel went to Evanston Township High School in Evanston, outside of Chicago. Okay. Um, I think originally he was at Senn High School with a lot of the other guys on the north side. And he was a phenomenal athlete. He was a basketball player. He was probably a star basketball player all the way through college. Hmm. I mean, a big shot basketball player. But he brought golf to Camp Ojibwa. Huh. He used to be the, used to be the, wood, the arts and crafts building. Then there was the rifle range. Then next door to the rifle range was the archery range. 
and next door to the archery range was the place where they had the horses tied up, like not as stables, but they tied the horses up there. Yeah. And then Bruddy had put in a golf driving range. Hmm. That's 1955. Wow. Is that, and that's like with the nets, where you hit into the nets, that kind of well, a thing? It was, if you want to call it a net, it was a big piece of canvas that they drew a target on. Ah. <laughs> Fair enough. And I mean, I, I just, I mean, the, it was just a rough thing that they just t- chopped down some trees and put this thing up, and everybody did it. Hmm. Everybody thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. Who ever thought about playing golf in 1955? Right. <laughs> I, mean, I think my parents belonged to a country club, Tamil Shanner Country Club in Chicago, but I never played golf then. Right. I couldn't afford it. Right. <laughs> but I just remember now, hmm. Joel Farber, Joel Bruddy Farber, he brought golf to Camp Ojibwa. Hmm. And uh, there was always something. Some of the, you know, everybody had a, a uniqueness about him. Well, speaking of some of those unique guys, we talked a little bit earlier about Sid Novak. Tell me a little bit about Sid and some maybe a good couple of Sid stories. Sid Novak was almost like family. Sid Novak and my mother dated each other at the University of Illinois back in the early 30s. Hmm. Or in, yeah, it was in the early, late 20s, early 30s. Um, my dad and Sid Novak grew up together on the west side of Chicago. They, known, they, they knew each other forever. And the Novaks lived um, 10 houses away from us. We lived on the corner of Farwell and Washington, and they were two houses off of Rockwell, which is the next street toward us. Hmm. So we grew up with the Novaks. And having, camp, having gone to camp and Sid there and Aunt Ann there, his wife, it sort of was a comfort feeling. Because I knew somebody that if there was a problem, I knew where to go. Sure. And uh, at the same time, Sid expected more of us than anybody else, I think. Because I remember when he made me, he made me one day in charge of the uh, hide the flag thing that we had. Oh. At camp. Sure. And he says, Lesker, you're in charge of Group A or B or whatever it was. And before I knew it, I was out there with 25 or 30 campers, and I was in charge of it and didn't know what to do. But Sid was, you know... I, I think Sid loved camp more than anybody else because he never had a son. Hmm. And he was, of course, as people knew him, he was a one of the, the best high school basketball coaches in the entire United States. Yeah. He played, and in his younger days, he played sports at the University of Illinois. Yeah, I've heard um, a lot of guys really talk a lot of great stuff about Sid. I mean, no one has anything bad to say about him. But I was most surprised when I heard that he was a professional wrestling referee. Actually, he was. He he re, he he was a coach at um, a school on the south side, LaSalle High School. I think is where he was at one time. But on Monday nights, he would he was a referee. And at, on Broadway and Waveland Avenue, at the when they used to have the wrestling and boxing. That's fantastic. He was the referee, <laughs> and we used to go and every once in a while. We'd go and he'd get his tickets to come in and see it. Oh, that's wonderful. And that's in the days when re- wrestling really was true wrestling. It wasn't today like you know. Sure. They're killing each other. It was. It was really an art. Yeah. And there was Sid Novak, little bald head, fat little tiny <laughs> running around with his 
black and white uniform or whatever else he had on at the time. Uh, that's great. But uh, Sid was, he was just part of the family. Yeah. And I mean, not only mine, he was part of everybody's family. And at camp, he was uh, the head counselor, but he was sort of running. I mean, obviously, he wasn't the director. Al's there. Mickey's there by then, I'm, I'm assuming. But no, I, Mickey came later. Mickey's maybe in service at that time or something? Well, I don't remember exactly. When I first went to camp, Al, Al Schwartz was there as the owner of camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sid Novak ran camp. Mm. Whether he was, I don't know what his title was, but he was in charge of everything. Gotcha. So he's organizing the activities, he's everything. assigning the staff, he's all that sort of stuff. He was doing everything there was. And then I don't remember I don't remember when they had it. They had some other guys. They they started hiring staff. I remember, but I don't remember what year and who they were, but they were bringing in guys that were specialists, you might say. Mm. One guy that I remember real well because he was he was the nicest guy you ever met in your life as far as sports were. A guy named Jim Wyatt. Okay. Jim was in charge of the tennis program because he was a former um, college and professional tennis champion, played at Wimbledon, places like that. Hmm. But Jim White was really, he was down to earth, quiet, laid back guy. He wasn't a counselor, he was sort of a, he was just in charge of the tennis program. Nice. And he did everything else too. You know, he helped out and the broad jump field that they had over there that sometimes and he'd oh, be sure. the water front. He's always these guys were always they were they were staff, I guess they called them. Right. So they weren't necessarily living in the cabins with kids being no. counselors, but they had their specialties and they did them and then probably right. had a good time the rest of the time. Yeah. Nice. They, but they were always there. They were always with the campers. Hmm. Always involved with us one way or the other. Jim White's he was one of the guys that you know, when you think about different people that were there. Um, there was a counselor that his brother uh, George Sebring's brother his name was Gene Sebring and he was probably the most uh, artistic not painting wise but singing mm. entertainment wise performing arts kind performing of performing arts guy I think he's the one that started the uh, what they call that thing the cabins uh, the inner cabin sing well, stunt show. I don't remember what it was. But there was a cabin sing. Everybody had a, a cabin sing. I think Gene Sebring was the one that started that. Hmm. But I, as far as I can remember. But he, the guy stood out like that because he just had, you know, he had an unbelievable voice and he knew how to do everything there was. Yeah. Well, speaking of that stuff, I mean, is that another thing you enjoyed at camp? The sort of dramatics, the singing, the... I, I always, I did, I loved it. I, I went back to camp two years ago for the first time in 50 years I took my wife there and wanted to show Lois Camp Ojibwa I mean she's heard about it for 27 years and I figured she better see it before it's too late <laughs> and uh, as we rode around camp and I said well we used to do this here and that there but I'll tell you the thing that I remember more than anything else in the and everybody at camp looked forward to it I don't, there wasn't a soul that didn't want to be there in the rec hall, and I mean, you were in the rec hall packed in like sardines. If you weren't standing inside, you were outside looking through the window in. Hmm. Or if you were lucky, maybe you got a seat up on the rafters and watched <laughs> the show. But the minstrel show was the most unbelievable thing in the world. Hmm. And that sort of, I sort of got involved with, 
the activities in the rec hall, and I liked that because I was able to work with my hands and build things and help things get built and fix things. And sure, uh, a guy named Henry Baum, who was sort of the camp um, electrician, plumber, do it your all man, whatever you might say, general handyman. He used to help me and guide me in building different things. And I, I think I don't remember the year, but it was one of the minstrel shows. That the guy they had about seven of the counselors or staff characters. They were they called them the minstrel men, and they decided to do a thing called a hand routine. And what happened was Henry Baum and I rigged up a black fluorescent light or a black light effect. Sure. And I'll never forget that the music was playing and all of a sudden every light in the rec hall went out, pitch black. You know, guys were screaming, turn on the lights, you know, and everything else. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the curtain opens up and you, can, you, you can't see anybody because it's pitch black. Right. And on... Henry tells me to flick the switch on, and I turn the light on. It's like a black spotlight, a black light. And here are these guys, six or seven of them, sitting on chairs, white gloves, white ties, bow ties, <laughs> a white belt, and white socks. Hmm. And that's all you saw on stage. And they started doing this hand routine of, I forgot the, what the music was to it, but... You know, they'd clap, and they'd clap their knee and clap their chest, and, and mm -hmm. you saw the rhythm was unbelievable. Hmm. Well, everybody just went wild. It was the most phenomenal show. I don't know if they ever repeated it. Well, they did for a number of years, but that was... They did repeat the hand routine for... They still do. They it's still do. it's changed a little bit here and there over the years. We don't do it um, because we've moved the show outside. Yeah. So the black light effect is now gone, and we've changed a little bit of what they're wearing just to be a little more socially conscious, but... Yeah. But it was, a, it was a phenomenal thing. I just remember the first year that I saw it being done. And at the end of the show, everybody was so excited and screaming and yelling more and more and more. And what did the six or seven guys do? They just sat there, put their hands up on the sides of their, on their shoulders, like lifting their hands up and smiled. And every one of their mouths had white teeth. <laughs> and everybody could see the white teeth. Nice. And it was really phenomenal. So that's when the black light begins. I think it was 52 or 53. Hmm. Maybe 54. But it, it was, I, I mean, I think everybody, I looked forward to it every year. Because every year was something different. Yeah. And I finally found, look, I finally found the picture of the guy who I think started it. Started it. I'm not sure. Started the minstrel show. I think he started it. His name was Al Shear. It was. It was always something at camp that was so different that you just looked forward. Sure. What about during uh, collegiate week with the stunt night? Any uh, any of those that stick out for you? Or? I just remember what I remember when we did our stunt night. Everybody forgot their lines. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I just remember that. Uh, what was his name? Cam. Um, I think I can't remember his name offhand. But he was trying to tell us all the words and the lines. He was standing off stage and yelling, say this, do this, say that. And we just had no idea what we were doing. Hmm. We just forgot everything there was. <laughs> but I'll tell you another thing at camp that everybody did. I don't know if they still do. We had inner camp sports. 
Yes, uh, we st- we do still do it. It's not to the level of what it was then, because you guys really we did it to, a lot. Oh yeah, we used to have swim meets with the other camps. We used to have baseball games with the other camps, uh, basketball games, tennis. They would play mm-hmm. camp, and we used to have socials. Now I think that you are probably right at the beginning of the socials because the guys from the '40s have told me there were no socials for them. So I think you're right at the beginning of when they started doing that. So what is a, a social in 1953? We'll say, look like. Well, the social that I can remember, you had to wear your white ducks. And okay. You had to wear your white Ojibwe t-shirt, which had to be clean. Okay, that's fair. That's that's dressing up at camp, basically, right? Camp, mm-hmm. And everybody looked the same, so you weren't. <laughs> everybody had the same advantage trying to figure out which girl you wanted to dance with or talk to or whatever. Sure. And it was it was kind of funny. I mean, I don't even remember the music back in the early fifties. It wasn't. I know it was beyond Bing Crosby, and I don't think it was yet. I don't think Elvis Presley came in. There. No, you probably like maybe some big band stuff, maybe. I don't really, you know, yeah. I don't remember, but it was a lot of fun. And now where did you do this? At the, we would go to the other, the girls' camp. Oh, you'd go to their camp. Okay. Yeah. And you'd just all be in a big, like a big rec hall together? Hall, big rec hall together. Okay. And there would be, they'd be playing music with a, a jukebox or a record player. Nice. And I remember one time we went to this girls' camp in Rhinelander, and I don't remember the name of it, and uh, one, uh, Steve Barr's sister was at that camp. Okay. And it was, you know, he was excited to see her and vice versa, and everybody wanted to see who Judy Barth was. And, of course, trying to find her in the crowd was almost impossible. (laughs) uh, Sure. It was a lot of fun. It was different. And uh, I just, I remember going to the camps, and you got, we went in the buses. Yeah. School buses. That's fun. Were the did the girls have to all dress the same as well, or were it just no. the boy? The boys got stuck with that. The girls could look gussied they, they up were, a little bit. They were dressed up. They mm-hmm. had skirts on and blouses. You know, they had, I don't remember if they had the poodle skirts at that time mm. or what, but I mean, they were dressed up, and it was always fun. It was very. It was always clean cut. It was no. Sure. I mean, they had they put out cookies and brownies and soft drinks and punch and stuff like that. Yeah. We didn't have Coca Cola or Pepsi or stuff like that. They. At Kool-Aid or something like that. But it was never, it was just a lot of fun. It was clean cut, good American fun, and it was enjoyable, and everybody would talk about it. You know, you got back to camp, hey, did you see so-and-so? And she looked, wow, and you know. Yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> at a boys' camp for eight weeks. I was going to say, it's a long summer. That's right. <laughs> but those are things that were unique. Yeah. What about the, uh, what about the Braves? Is that something you were a part of, the Ojibwe Brave? I was an Ojibwe Brave. Um, I don't remember what year I became a Brave. I know that I know that the first year that I think I was eligible for it, I got passed by, and I was concerned why. I didn't really didn't know why. Hmm. Um, they had picked for they picked a couple of guys in our cabin, one or two. Of, I think I was in cabin nine at that time. Okay. And they picked one or two guys from cabin nine. And a couple of guys in cabin 11 or 12. And so, you know, it didn't really bother me that much. I just didn't understand it, what it was all about. I really wasn't even sure what the Braves was all about either. It, it, to me, it was a clan. Mm. You know, I wasn't <laughs> sure what it was. Sure, time. sure. All I know is that if you're a Brave, you got to go to the, uh, camp, the camp campfire 
back way behind the hospital there. Right. Uh, and you got to walk there before everybody else. And you got the best seat and the place to sit. Yeah. Those are the primary perks. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I was a brave, and I enjoyed it. And I, um, I, I don't think I ever got any farther. I, I don't remember, in fact. I think they gave you, when you became a brave, you got one feather. Hmm. When they, they got, when they knighted you to be an Ojibwa brave, you got a headband and there was one feather in it. Okay. And the next year, you remember the Braves, I think you got a second feather. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. And I, I don't remember. I just don't remember anymore after that. I just do. I remember the last year that I was at camp, um, Ira Keishan was the chief brave. And I don't remember what year that was. Yeah. But he, was, he became the chief of the Braves. And uh, but it was, you know, it was an honor. Yeah, Everybody for sure. Everybody was in a brave at camp. Some kids cried a lot that they didn't get in. Right. And people, you know, it was almost a discriminatory thing. Because right. It didn't, I don't think, I don't know if it meant by age or, or time at camp or what. I really didn't know how they picked them. Right. But, and mm. I don't even know who picked them. <laughs> I don't know if it was counselors or Sid or Al or... Or who did it? I had no yeah. idea. It, it was there, and it, I was part of it. Did it was a meaningful thing to remember about camp? I would say no. Mm. I wasn't. It wasn't one of the outstanding things I remember about camp. Gotcha. You know, um, I think I think I told you this earlier when you came to see me that the thing that stood out in my mind and still does to this day, as I told you, I loved swimming, and my brother did too. He was really good. Um. I think I was, and I think I probably still am, the only camper that I know of that achieved what they call the lake swim. And I swam from the dock across the lake, past the right-hand side of both the islands, to the road on the other side of the lake. And It's incredible. Steve, uh, what's his name, Koch, Lenny, uh, he was a waterfront director. Ed Koch? Ed Koch. He was right by me all the time in a rowboat. Hmm. And he rowed all the way across the lake and back. Wow. And that's quite a, quite a swim, my friend. Quite a swim, yeah. That time, but I loved it. I mean, that's the waterfront activity is what I used to love more than anything. Yeah. Because that's what I enjoyed. And, uh, and always, it was always competition, too. It was really... Hmm. It was not only recreational, but we always had swim meets that were competitional. Guys were always saying, you know, Gervy goes home with the trophies every year. we got to knock them out somehow. <laughs> so I said, you know, it was always, I always enjoyed that. Yeah. You know, and in there. those days, you had to swim, like swimming around the islands was a thing. Like oh, yeah. doing the island, the one island, the two island swim, three island, I guess. I don't know if they did that they, yet. Uh, but They had those things like that for a long time. They stopped them. I don't remember what year they stopped because somebody, somebody said, because what they did is they blocked off the lake hmm. around the islands. And people complained, I think, about having to go around the outside of the islands because we were blocking off their access between Camp Ojibwe and the islands. Gotcha. But, uh, that make, that actually makes a lot of sense because I've always wondered why. I know that there's a there was like a sandbar on one part where you could walk almost all the way to the first island without going more than 
without really going all the way under and things yeah. like that. And I always wondered why, if all that was there, why we couldn't make use of more of it. But it makes sense that it was blocking access for other people on the yeah. lake. I remember, you know, in 1954, maybe, 55, I remember that, uh, I don't remember his name, he was the head of the workshop, the arts and crafts department at the time. Um, they built a ski jump, a water ski jump for the three girls that used to live on the island with their parents. You know, nobody in Ocampo, only there was only two guys that ever were able to use the ski jump. Dave hmm. Baum was one of them. Okay. And I don't remember the other guy. I think it was Paul Keishan. Hmm. Because Keishan's had Paul Keishan was uh, Ira's older cousin. They had a a uh, Chris Graff at camp of oh. their own. Oh. The Keishans had a home up the lake. Right, because they had a home across the way, right? Across the lake. Mm -hmm. And they used to bring their, um, their boat, the motorboat, over. Nice. So I think he was the only other one that ever used that ski jump. But it was built at Camp Ojibwe, hmm. over by the Arts and Crafts building in the small ball field. And it was carried down behind cabins 7, 8, 9, 10 on that road path. Sure. It was carried by the campers. I think 40 or 50 of us got Wow, well, I was going to say, a lot of campers. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. huge. But the benefit being that you got to watch these three girls ski jump. All the time. <laughs> everybody, 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 in fact, that's why you used to do the island swim, is just to see if you could see anybody there. <laughs> and, it's a long summer, ladies and gentlemen. It is a long summer. <laughs> well, they were actually, they were girls. They used to go to Nutria Township mm. in the suburbs of Chicago. And some guys knew them and some didn't. But it, yeah. was, it was always fun. Uh, let me ask you this question. The, um, when you were younger, were there scary stories that people told? And if so, were there like characters who recurred in these scary stories? Do you remember anything like I, that? I don't really remember anything. I mean, it was always some, always, it was always stories about, you know, don't go behind the, the rifle range because that gulch down there is dead man's gulch. Mm. And today I think there's, is a zip line down there or something? What's the yeah, it leads back there. Mm -hmm. it, it, um, yeah, you get there that way. Mm -hmm. yeah, but people used to talk about Dead Man's Gulch back there, and if you go there, that uh, somebody's going to get you. <laughs> it's basically a swamp. I don't remember that many of them. Yeah. I don't think people had time for them. Sure, you just run around being busy. Well, I tell you what, when you used to get up real early in the morning, and it was... Uh, the showers are into the lake. Mm -hmm. And, of course, 99% of the guys didn't want to go into the water at the lake because it was ice cold. And uh, the showers were always overcrowded, so you didn't have a choice after a while. Just, you had to be ready and dressed and get your cabin clean so you can go to breakfast. But uh, you put in a long, hard day at Ojibwa. Mm. I mean, there was no messing around. You Lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner was timed. They knew exactly what it was. And uh, it's eat or sink and swim. <laughs> <laughs> and if you didn't get, if you did, if you sat at a long table at the opposite end of the table from your counselor, sometimes you never got anything to eat. Oh. <laughs> Which I'm sure happens today too. <laughs> Let me ask you about uh, someone we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, people who've listened to the podcast or know about the project know that uh, Diz, Steve Nitzkin, Diz Nitzkin, was a was an important part in sort of kicking this off and making this happen. Sort of to me, certainly, and and to lots of others, Diz is an important part of camp's history and an important part of this project. So, tell me about Diz. 
Well, interesting enough, when I went to Camp Ojibwe this past two years ago, and I didn't even know, it didn't ring a bell, that Stu Nitzkin was his son. Mm. I didn't put two and two together. I just said, Dizzy Nitzkin? And everybody said, yeah, that was my dad. So I hadn't seen Diz probably since probably in the early 70s. Um, I lived in Chicago, late 60s, and I remember Diz was married at the time, and so was I. But he was he was sort of a uh, a fixture at camp. Hmm. He was he was a he never nobody ever said a bad thing about Dizzy Nitzkin. He was yeah. friends with everybody. He was the la- most laughable guy in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, he, he would do he would do things that most people would never think about, hmm. like. You know, he would run to the uh, men's ba- the bathroom that was over by cabin seven. Okay. Catch the wreck off mm-hmm. in a diaper. <laughs> you know, he took a sheet and made a diaper out of it. Sure. He's a big guy, too. Buddy. Right. <laughs> He's a big guy. Um, and nobody ever thought anything about it. Okay. <laughs> you know, he would, he would always do things that were out of the ordinary, get away with them because he was just the most likable guy in the world. Hmm. I don't think, I, I would say that Dizzy is a tribute to Camp Ojibwe. Yeah. And uh, the camp's a tribute to him, too. He's a, he was a longtime camper. I don't know, did he ever become a counselor? Uh, yes, yeah, he definitely did some counselor years. But I just, Dizzy was just a good, he was a good friend. If Anytime you needed somebody to talk to or you needed counseling or you needed just a friend that was there for no other reason just to be a friend, he was there. And I'm not sure that he was a sports-minded guy as everybody else thought he was. Hmm. Because he was an overgrown oaf. Sure. I mean... <laughs> Sometimes just being a big guy at camp goes a long way. Yeah, well, but I mean... Uh, I'm just trying to think. I remember one time we were, we were playing basketball one time and he almost came down on me. I thought the whole world was in it. <laughs> a wonderful guy is going to be missed by everybody truly missed by everybody yeah for sure yeah uh the last thing i like to ask everyone uh, is you know you are now you're a grown-up you've you've lived (laughs) um you've lived a long life at this point what is the effect you would say camp ojibwe had on your life camp ojibwe when i was there was just prior to my being bar mitzvah and Camp Ojibwe was more of a uh, maturing education. Being on your own, being there with peers your same age, had the same interests, and didn't have to worry about mommy and daddy, and didn't have to re- you know, be responsible to mommy and daddy, or responsible for yourself. Um, I, I just think it was a... It was the best time of the year growing up. I think kids today don't understand what it meant to go to summer camp and grow up at summer camps. Hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate that my granddaughter, who's now going to be 16, decided to go to camp four or five years ago. Hmm. And uh, she goes to a camp up in Minnesota, Thunderbird. And she ha- she looks she has friends all over the United States now. Today, yeah. They're pen pals, I guess they call them. <laughs> Today they're probably iPhone pals. Right. But uh, 
camping was a mature experiencing and an experience to try things that were totally different. Hmm. Because when you were home, you know, you couldn't go play football or baseball or soccer or, or tennis or anything else because you, there weren't enough guys around to do it all. Everybody was going their own way. Yeah. And uh, it just, it was just, a, it was just really all a lifetime experience. I am going to be 75 this summer, and I remember Camp Ojibwe's yesterday. Hmm. I mean, I, I was just looking through the computer at all the old warriors and. I could run down those names and I could tell you what every guy looked like and everything. I just mm. remember them all. But that's what camp did. Camp was... Camp made me get involved with camps here in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. Because I had a camping experience that no one could forget. I became involved with the Jewish Community Center camp here in Atlanta. Camp Barney Menons. Okay. And my both my children went to camp there. And... I was always active in it. I was always on the board of camp. I helped build the arts and crafts center that was there. Um, and I think that's all because in, I had ingrained in my mind what camp should be for somebody. Hmm. You know, Jibble was the camp. The camp was a, made you more of a rounding person. It rounded out your whole life. And you never forget it. Well, that's perfect. I... I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This has been awesome. Okay, that is it. Another one in the books. Less Gurvy. Some incredible stories in there. One slight correction. I think we talked about Ed Koch being the waterfront director, and I can find no proof that Ed Koch, former mayor or otherwise, was actually a waterfront director. So I'm not sure who we're getting that confused with, but that part probably not entirely accurate. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampOjibwaHistory.org, or just come by the website. I can tell you that the 70s Warriors and the 80s Warriors are ready to go. They're going to be popping up on the website very soon. So keep your eyes open for that. Unfortunately, the typically beautiful, balmy Chicago spring weather is currently a gross, cold, rainy mess. So I'm probably just going to stay in tonight.